My name's Daniel Ruskin. I'm Kylie Dossie. And then we're back for our uh, second episode of the Daniel and Kylie Policy Podcast. Uh, last week we talked about uh, uh, COVID and the CARES Act, and this week we're going to be talking a little bit about the cost and affordability of higher education. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess we can just get right to it. So I think we can probably both agree that uh, education is too expensive right now. Um, I mean, obviously for undergraduate education as well as for graduate education in certain fields. And I hoped that, you know, for in our conversation today, we could talk about maybe the history for why that is and then um, where we are right now and then, you know, what possible policies exist to try and address that. And then what we can do to, um, I guess, promote the correct policies or what we feel are the best policies. So I guess that can try and guide your conversation a little bit. Um, yeah. So we can just hop right in. So if we look um, over the years, over the past few decades, um, going back to about like 1990 or so, um, the average price of a four-year college, at least tuition-wise, has gone up about three times. Um, mm-hmm. overall. So what someone paid back in um, 1990 um, for, say, UConn is a third of the price of what um, Daniel and I are currently paying. Um, I mean, some universities have had de- um, decreases over the years, but within five states over the past five years, which if you look at um, different states, about nine states have increased by 15% or more. So I personally know that within the state of Connecticut, there has been a lot of increases. It does have a lot to do with the fact that our state is at a deficit currently. So we are not investing as much uh, public money into colleges and universities and all of that. But that's also a whole nother topic that we can get into on why tuition has raised over the past few decades. Yeah. And I think one thing that I'll just kind of note here to, to make that three times uh, statistic even more scary, um, that's actually inflation adjusted. So this is, you know, tuition today at a public four-year university on average is three times as high as it was in 1990 adjusted for inflation. So in addition to inflation. Um, so I mean, it's, it's not just like, you know, we can't explain this away by saying, oh yeah, well, you know, money's worth less now. It's actually, it is increasing. The price is increasing faster than um, inflation is happening and faster than, um, you know, consumer goods prices are increasing, for example. So it, it is a, a real issue that needs to be addressed. And I think you brought up something interesting, the lack of public funding, which is not only a thing in Connecticut, I think it's happening across the country. Um, I mean, average, <clears throat> the um, funding that universities get from them, both states and localities is decreasing in general. And in fact, over the last 10 years, only eight out of our 50 states have had an increase the rest of them have had a decrease. Um, and I think that's definitely contributing to um, you know the increase in tuition as well. Yeah, and even if um, you look at all these costs and you decide, hey, I think I'm gonna work full-time throughout school and get my bachelor's degree at the same time as working full-time, that's not going to save a lot of people money. It's actually gonna end up costing you more in the end. Um, there's lots of people who try to go about this path I personally know that um, aren't saving much money overall. And like, because of all that, only 41% of all students have actually completed their bachelor's within four years, which is a really big fear for a lot of people 
to just get it done within that time frame because you want to try to keep it as minimum as possible, like your cost at the end of the day. So the less time that you spend there is the less time or the less money you're going to be spending towards it. And people do try to offset it with the working full time and it's the cost benefit isn't working out in their favor. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think at face value, it seems, yeah, like it's good. If you're working full time, you can maybe take out less loans, but you're right. Um, if you're working, you can only take so many classes if you're working full time. And it's, it's definitely, it's, it's gotta be tough to graduate on a four year schedule when you're working full time. I mean, one option, you know, that's available to people is to be a part-time student and then, you know, not pay full tuition, but pay maybe, you know, for six credits a semester or something, but then you're paying per credit, which tends to be very expensive. It can be thousands of dollars um, per, per credit in some cases, depending on the university that you're going to. So it'll still end up costing you longer or much more in the long run um, if it takes, you know, five, six years to complete your degree, which like you mentioned, it does for many people. So, I mean, the majority of people are not completing their bachelor's degrees in four years. For most people, it's taking longer. Yeah. And it's not, the cost doesn't have everything to do with the fact that schools are putting so much money into things like new rec centers, um, into sports, new stadiums, all that. It's not just that, like overall within the United States, we spend almost seven times more just on the core operations than any of like the extra services like dining halls and rec centers and all that. And the only country that actually spends more than us is Luxembourg. But at the same time, if you look at them, their kids go to school for free. Like there's no tuition involved with them. So it's more of a question of what's happening with these funds. Why are we spending so much more? And it does have to do with what I mentioned earlier with the constant decreases in state funding. Like I was saying, like Connecticut has been experiencing a lot of tuition increases over the past decade or so. It does have a lot to do with the fact that we're in a deficit, but it's not just us. It's overall across the United States, less and less states are investing into their public schools and it's having a really awful effect on the students and how much they're going to have to dish out at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think part of the reason why this happens is because funding to universities, you know, the, you know state universities seems like an easy thing to cut at face value. Um, you, if you cut university funding by 10% and they increase tuition by 10%, or, you know, obviously those numbers are made up, but hypothetically, if they increase tuition by 10%, students will just have to take out more loans. And I think that the idea that there is essentially, I'm not going to say unlimited lending capacity, but a lot of lending capacity from the federal government and pr from private lenders, where if someone wants to go to an expensive school, most likely they can get the credit to do that. Um, I think it kind of creates a weird demand bubble because the demand for school is not necessarily tied to the price. So, you know, universities can increase prices as much as they want and people are still going to go because, I mean, in general, education is worth it. Um, it will increase career prospects in the long run, but it it's scary to me how it seems like we can just keep on cutting funding to universities and just kind of packing passing the bus on, or sorry, passing the buck onto students um, and, and making them take out more loans. I mean, it's possible and we're doing it, but it's definitely contributed to the student loan bubble that we have right now. Um, and it's putting a lot of people in a very uh, precarious place financially for 10, 20, 30 years of their lives. Yeah, and we've certainly shifted into a society that does very much value higher education, which is wonderful. But at the same time, 
the issue becomes that people can't go without this higher education anymore. Even if they can't afford it, they're still stressed to apply for every scholarship that you can, apply for every loan, talk to financial aid, which yes, can offset the cost a bit, but at the end of the day, you're still going to get a massive bill for the education that you sought. But on the other hand, you can't get away with not getting this education. Americans with college degrees earn 75% more than those who only completed high school, which maybe back um, when our parents graduated, like I know that neither of my parents have college degrees and they still can make a pretty decent living off of that. But it's because they were able to grow up in a society where college was not entirely necessary. You could get away with not going to college. And that's the path that they decided to go on. Whereas if you try to do that nowadays, you're not going to find really any jobs that require anything less than an associate's degree. Like even if you just want to be a, a receptionist at, I don't know, like a hair salon or something like that, you still a lot of times need associates or something. Or even with doctor's offices and everything, you're going to need a bare minimum education past high school. And a lot of issues come from that. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's essentially made, you know, the bachelor's degree or the associate's degree, the new high school degree. I think we're not in a world anymore where, I mean, it's definitely possible to get by without any additional education after high school, but it's very difficult. I mean, a lot of times you're going to be stuck working minimum wage jobs long term. So I think it's, it's necessary to get some kind of education after high school, although it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a four-year degree. I mean, I, I think there are other educational opportunities that can, you know, help out and bring you, put you in a place where you can get a much better job. So you mentioned associate's degrees. Um, there are also trade schools that you can go to if you want to enter um, a trade, which I think is a perfectly respectable career. I mean, it, there's nothing wrong with that. And you can make a very good living doing that. But, and I think that's definitely a good option to have. And I think for people who go that route, um, it's likely cheaper to get that kind of education. And it's likely going to put them in a place where they're earning money quicker. Um, they don't have to wait, you know, four years to get their degree and then enter an entry-level job. They can start that, you know, right away and start making money right away, which I think is good. And it's a great option. But for those people who then want to do something different, um, you know, uh, pursue like a professional degree after undergrad, maybe, it's very difficult to do that financially. And I, I think you look, and you're right, it does have a lot of compounding issues across society. Like you look, we have a, a shortage of primary care doctors right now. And I think part of that can be tied to the fact that people who go to undergrad and then they go to medical school, they can have half a million dollars in loans easily by the time they graduate medical school. And it's just not financially feasible for them to become a primary care doctor as opposed to pursuing a, a higher paying profession or specialty. So I think like the student loan bubble that we have right now very much affects societies in other ways, like simply than financially. Um, I, I think it's it affects consumer demand. It affects what professions people can pursue. Um, and I think it's it's something that we as a society have to start talking about more. And I think, you know, we've started talking about it more over the past five or six years. But I think my personal opinion is that um, some form of college should be publicly funded completely. I think it should be essentially just like we go to middle school and high school and we get that, um, you know, primary education, some form of post-secondary education should also be, you know, included, so to speak. I don't want to say free because it is being funded somehow by taxes or something else, but I think it should be a public service and not something that you have to shell out tens of thousands of dollars a year for. Absolutely. 
I'm actually going to shock you a little bit um, with trade schools and everything. So my brother, he's um, a few years younger than me. He's only 19. Um, he is just about to graduate from Porchester Institute. He went there after dropping out of UConn after a semester, realizing that traditional college was not the path for him. And he actually really wants to become a mechanic and work with cars. He still pays roughly $18,000 for his whole year of tuition. And that really shocked me when I heard that because I had always heard people saying, oh, trade school is so inexpensive. Like it's gonna, it's gonna make you so much money afterwards and everything. Whereas like our parents, unfortunately can't fully support us through school. So me and all my siblings had to take out loans. So my brother is already in about half the debt that I'm in from going to four years of UConn, which really shocks me when he told me that because I wasn't expecting that from what everyone talks about with trade schools and everything, how they're, like I was saying before, like so inexpensive, like you're going to make back everything. It's not quite that. And it's not spoken about enough. And why I really appreciated the whole discussion about helping um, subsidize schools and everything and making sure that tuition is being paid out instead of having students have to dish out thousands of dollars towards this and try and help them out and make it more of a public good. I'm really happy that much more people within the past decade or so have been talking about that, not only with public schools, but also trade schools, because it just ends up flying under the radar that these quick one-year programs, you're still paying a lot out of pocket for them. I had no idea, to be honest with you. I had no idea that, it, you know, seventeen, eighteen thousand dollars $18,000 a year. I mean, that's, I think that's on par with UConn, actually. Like, I yeah. think, depending on, on what your program is, I think my tuition for engineering, ignoring room and board is, I think, you know, a little under $7,000 a semester. Oh, yeah. So I, it's very similar. So, I mean, I had no idea about that. So thank you for shocking me with that. Yeah, I think uh, mine for um, being in the liberal arts and science school Mine is like maybe like a hundred dollars under like seven hundred like seven thousand. So I think I think I pay about like roughly like sixty or sixty nine hundred um per semester for it. But even like like you're saying before, without room and board, you don't include the fees or anything. I'm still paying less than my own brother who's going to a trade school for only one year. I'm paying less than him in tuition to go to a public university. That really shocked me when he told me all that. Yeah. And the thing is, we need people in these trades. I mean, we need mechanics and we need electricians and we need plumbers. And I think it's it's sad to me that in order to enter that kind of profession, it, it's almost discouraged. The fact that you have to pay $17,000 um, for, for a year-long program that a lot of people can't afford. Um, it's it's not great. And I think we definitely, I mean, a lot of people talk about um, you know free community free community college or free two-year degrees or free four-year degrees at state universities. I think trade schools should be included in that as well. Um, I think that should be, uh, you know, part of any kind of education policy that that gets developed. But I think it, it is good that we've been talking about this more as a society for the past, you know, five, six years. I think as, as the Democratic Party has moved more to the left in some ways, I think that has made it less uh, or made it more acceptable to talk about uh, you know, free education. Yeah, I don't want to say free, but to talk about publicly funded education as a, um, you know, I guess, platform for people to um, base their campaigns on. You know, you see Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and, and all the serious candidates. Um, I don't know about Joe Biden, actually, but all, all of the 
a lot of the serious candidates have made uh, publicly funded education is a large part of that campaign. So I'm hoping that this continues to happen and uh, we, you know, hopefully in the next election cycle, maybe we'll have some some policies proposed and voted on. Yeah, uh, I know that of course, um, Joe Biden is currently the presumptive nominee since um, Bernie has suspended his campaign. It doesn't mean that he's no longer running, just for people listening. He is still running a campaign. He is still going to be on your party's ballot. So if you still want to vote for him, absolutely do so, because he is still going to be at the convention. And the more delegates that he ends up racking up, there is going to be a lot more influence that he's able going, eh, going to be able to put on the Democratic Party to adopt more of his ideas. So I know that Joe Biden has moved progressively more left on the idea of tuition-free college and helping subsidize public education and everything. But the more that he racks up, the more he's able going to push, hey, we need um, we need tuition-free four-year colleges. We're going to need tuition-free trade schools. Like People are going to need these sort of amenities in order to essentially survive in our society. Even I just work over in dying services at UConn, but pretty much everyone who I work with who is on the management team all have degrees in restaurant management, dining, all that kind of stuff. They all still had to go to school for that, even though their jobs aren't considered to be super glamorous or anything to be like, oh, I'm the manager of a dining hall at a university. That doesn't impress people as much as saying that you're a hedge fund manager but they still went to school and they still got degrees to do this. So you st- yep. people need public education it needs to be an amenity because even just to get what's considered these smaller jobs in society, you still need the education in order to hold those jobs. Yeah. I mean, education is a must. It's as simple as that. I mean, it, I think it's, it's, it doesn't make sense to just stop funding after high school because you know people now know how to read and write. I mean that's great, <laughs> read and write and you know whatever. But it's we do need that additional specialized education to get people into a field and to get people able to sustain on their own. And I think it, that's only becoming more and more the case, especially as you know automation becomes more of a thing and more and more jobs are you know automated out of existence. I think people are going to need to have education to make themselves valuable and to make themselves you know attractive to employers. Yeah. So I, I, I don't <laughs> think this issue is going to go away by any means. I think it's just going to get more and more severe as over you know the next couple of years and the next decade. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because even though it has become such a widely discussed topic, um, a lot of the times within like the Democratic Party, but it has been pushed into the public sphere a lot. Still, public funding is still going down pretty much every single decade into public education, which is shocking as this becomes a topic conversation over and over again. If you look at um, our pre-recession levels, we're actually $6.6 billion below that. Connecticut itself is 21% less. Tuition has increased by almost 40% in the same period of time. And it's just shocking to assume that as like as the funding goes down, like you were saying before, they're trying to use the students paying more tuition to try to offset that. But just hurting the students at the end of the day, you're blocking amazing prospective students from coming to your school because they can't afford your tuition. And 
like I was saying before, as this like as this conversation continues, why are we continuing to pull back our public funding when we know that that is a great answer to come and fix this? I mean, that's why tuition and universities cost so much less decades ago was because there was so much public funding in it, but then we slowly pulled more and more back over the years. And now we're left with this student loan bubble that you mentioned before, because the students can't afford to pay out pocket. Yep. And I think what's interesting to me is the, I think when people talk about publicly funded education or publicly funded post-secondary education, a lot of the times the, the counter argument is that there isn't enough money, but in a lot of ways, I mean, People are still, I mean, I guess we have the money, I think. I mean, like we, for every $1 state lawmakers raise it into revenue, they cut $3 from existing spending over the past, you know, since the recession. And and I guess since we're now in another recession right now, I should specify the, the 2008 recession. But um, I, I think we do have the money. I think it's possible to adjust budgets, both on the state and federal level, to make funding available for education. I just think it's a matter of making it a priority for both state and federal policymakers. And I will say also, even on the federal level, even though you know people still have to take out loans to pursue degrees, we still have forgiveness programs. For example, the public service loan forgiveness program, You know, after 10 years of working in a public service job and, and participating in income-based repayment, um, those loans that you have that haven't been paid will then be forgiven. What's interesting to me is that the Department of Education, the federal government is footing the bill for that forgiveness. So it almost seems to me like it's just a big circle. Why not, instead of making people take out loans that you then forgive, why don't we make uh, make that funding available to students as grants to begin with and maybe have some kind of pledge? Okay, you know, if you, if you pledge to pursue a public interest career, then we will pay for your education up front. I think if the Department of Education is going to provide those loan guarantees and they're going to provide that funding for forgiveness, it just seems more sane to just do it up front. But that's just my opinion. Yeah. For um, for those listening who um, don't know a lot about the public service loan forgiveness program, so that is a program that if you work within public service, say you're a legislative aide in a Congress office, you work for the Peace Corps, anything that you are um, obviously working in public service, you can apply after 10 years of continuously paying into your loans. You can apply to a program that will pay off the rest of your loans You'll have to worry about a thing. The big issue with this is that this was recently acknowledged, um, I think back in 2018 by Betsy DeVos. She acknowledged that the education department rejects 99% of these applications. Only 1% of people are actually approved for this, which is insane if you consider the sheer amount of people who work in public service. Like, Even if you just think about within Congress, um, say, from my experience in working in Congress offices, there's roughly about eight staffers in the office, and that's just in the district office. And then if you include um, people who work down over in the D.C. office, there's a lot more people because you need to have um, people on specific committees. Say if um, you have someone on the Foreign Relations Committee or anything, you need to have someone who is specially um, hired to help out with that position. And if you do all the math with it, that's an insane amount of people who work in public service just under Congress. And that's not including the Peace Corps, people who work um, in different sectors. Maybe they work in um, 
the treasury, the interior, all of that, there are literally thousands, if not millions of people working in public service. And if a lot of them are banking on this loan forgiveness program, a whole lot of them, 99% of them are going to end up disappointed at the end of the day. Yeah. And I feel like we, as a country, we should be encouraging people to work in public service. This should be something that we incentivize, not something that we deny 99% of applicants after they've already done their 10 years. I mean, we should be treating these people very well. So it's scary. I mean, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of great benefits to working in public service, but a lot of these benefits, I mean, one of the biggest ones is this public service loan forgiveness program, which Mm -hmm. when I was working in public service, that was a lot of the stuff that they tried to push on us to continue working in public service. They're look at all these benefits. And one of the big things that they pushed forward was the public service loan forgiveness program. But then not even a couple of years later, I find out that I'm not even probably going to qualify for it. There is a 99 to 1% chance that I'm not going to get it. And yeah, I mean, I'd be interested to see the data too on why those applications were rejected. I mean, I, I wonder like, did all these people work their 10 years? Were, were there other discrepancies in their application or is the department just incompetent? I, I guess I have no idea. I have to do some research on that. Yeah. It's, oh, it's a, it's a whole thing. I think that it very much was swept under the rug after it happened. Cause I remember it was a massive story, like end of 2018, beginning of 2019. And then I've just heard no one discuss it in the past like year or two. And I just, I keep on going back to that whenever people talk about higher education, I'm like, Hey, why has no one addressed like what's going on with this program that is supposed to help out like thousands of thousands of people and just, they're all getting rejected. And no one talks about it anymore and no one has come up with any ideas on how to fix it or even brought the idea of complete student loan forgiveness, which has been bounced around with um, this pandemic going on. But I feel like the conversation never sticks because people just get upset about the idea of, oh, I paid my fair share or I paid for my kids to go to school. Like, where's my, um, where's my check in the mail? And I'm like, that's not what this is about. This is about people who had to take out loans because they couldn't afford it on their own. Their parents weren't helping them out. Like that's amazing that you were able to pay off all your loans or that your parents were able to help you or you were able to help out your kids. But quite frankly, this is not about you at this time. This is about people who are extremely disadvantaged. And I don't know, that conversation always frustrates me. Yeah, maybe I feel like instead of being... Representing people who are going to receive aid for their loans, maybe those individuals should be grateful that they had the support when they went to college to pay for I think it should be more, you know, I'm happy that I was able, you know, not me specifically, but I'm happy that, you know, they they were able to pay for it on their own, but that doesn't mean that other people shouldn't be helped. It's they're completely two different things. You're right. It's not about them. Yeah. I think one thing that uh that I guess frustrates me too is if you look at you know a graph of government spending we spend more i mean i don't know the exact you know multiple but probably 10 times as much on military and defense spending than we do on education which to me just seems like a very you know skewed priority so i mean in 2018 for example it looks like we spent 623 billion on uh, defense and i'll mention that does not include veterans benefits because i have no objection to that i think people who served our country should be 
provided with benefits, um, you know, education and healthcare and, and all of that, I think that's that spending is very well, um, you know, well deserved. But you know, on active defense spending, so this is you know, buying goods and services for the military, building ships, building planes, um, funding military research, six hundred twenty-three billion dollars that could instead be provided, um, maybe not all of it, but a good chunk of that could probably be redirected to education or other more, I don't want to use the word productive, but productive causes. I think it is important for us to have a comprehensive defense infrastructure and a comprehensive military, but it just seems like we can do that in less than $623 billion a year. We're not in, you know, a war right now where we are actively using, you know, all of our planes, for example, as far as I'm aware. I mean, yeah. I just don't see what we have to spend this much money. Yeah, it's, I mean, we could do a whole episode about breaking down the U.S. budget and what could be improved about it and all that. But again, I'll save that for another episode. But I absolutely agree. I mean, the amount that we spend on education is, like I was saying in the beginning, is so much more in comparison to other countries. We spend more than every single other country, except for Luxembourg. But even then, Luxembourg still has tuition-free schools for their own students. And it's not it's not clear on like where all this is going. People have like their hunches. They think it's because, like I was also saying earlier, because we build new rec centers, because we build new sports stadiums. It's all it's X, Y, and Z, but none of that explains it away at the end of the day on where all this money is going towards. Why are we spending all this money yet we still somehow cannot provide tuition-free public education for every single prospective student in the United States where every other developed country can do so? It just absolutely blows my mind that we somehow can't grasp that. Yep. I completely agree. I think it's, I don't think our education system is, should be intrinsically more expensive than every other country. I think if we're going to spend this much money on education as a country, we should find ways for that education to be funded um, in in a manner that doesn't make people financially crippled for the rest of their lives. Um, And I think one comparison that I I thought was very apt, this was in, in 2018 article in The Atlantic, it was a comparison to cost of healthcare. So like college, we spend a lot of money as healthcare as a, on healthcare as a country, more than most other countries. Um, and yet we still have um, what many would consider a very complex, non-efficient system or inefficient system. So, you know, for example, hospitals and colleges both charge different prices to different people, um, making them complex and making so that when you get a bill at the end, at, at the, end of the day, you don't really know, did I get a good deal on this? Did I pay for what I should have paid for? Um, did I get a good price for what I paid for? I mean, it. it's the same, that's what that healthcare, obviously, where, you know, you might get a bill with like 700 different procedures on it for a three-day emergency room stay, and now you have to pay them like $100,000. It's similar with college, right? Where you have, you know, a fee bill every semester and it itemizes, you know, $1,000 here, $6,000 there. And that's the sticker cost maybe, but then a lot of people are getting scholarships, mean, meaning that they're paying less than other students. Um, it, it just it just feels so out of touch to me that there's no way for us to have an efficient option, an efficient way of getting just what we need with education 
um, and, and getting it for you know a fair price. But I mean, I, I think it's I don't know. I just think it's a problem. I think with it's a similar problem with healthcare with with uh, you know non-transparent pricing, non-transparent payment plans. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that um, definitely Trump has been spouting this, but also Obama and other presidents in the past have always said that like America has the best colleges and the best universities in the whole world. But like, there is no meaningful data to prove this fact. Like, yes, we do have a large number of elite colleges that don't accept even more than like seven or eight percent of their applicants. So you think of like all the Ivies across New England, you think of USC, UCLA, like Stanford, Yale, Cornell, like all these absolutely amazing schools. We have a lot of those. But at the same time, like almost no American students attend these. Like it's less than one percent of American students actually get into these colleges and end up going to them. Whereas a great majority of us end up going to the more like non-selective ones, you know, your UConns, your UNHs, like all those Mm -hmm. majority students end up going there. And then if you look at them roughly like maybe like 15 years after graduation, like in their mid thirties or so, they're actually performing less than their other similarly like educated peers across the globe. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, like, we're not doing much better, say, in, like, math and stuff like that in comparison to um, Scandinavian countries and all that. I mean, we do better in reading and all that, but we're not the absolute best colleges and the best universities. Like I was saying, we do have a disproportionate amount of Ely colleges, but a majority of us do not go there. We go to our local state schools or community colleges instead because they're much easier to get into. And at the end of the day, they're also a lot less expensive to go to. Yep, I completely agree. I think it's it's very easy to say that, yeah, you know, we spend more on education than most other countries, but that we also have better education than most other countries. But you're right, I don't think there's enough data to say that. Um, I think, you know, you know, in the UK, for example, is Oxford and is Cambridge. I mean, there are universities across the world that are considered just as elite as, you know, or just as high quality of education as, you know, Yale or Harvard, yet somehow all those countries are spending less than us. And most of those countries as well, especially European and I think Scandinavian countries as well, have a lot more government assistance with tuition. So it just boggles the mind why we can't do that here. Um, I, I think it's just a matter of getting your priority state with, are correct where, with where we want to spend our money. Um, and I think education has to be near the top of that list because it's it's necessary for our society to move forward and for people to sustain themselves and live productive, um, happy lives. So I think it's it's something that we could, you know, spend, I guess, less on education. Um, and we probably could have it government funded and we probably could have a similar quality of education that we do right now and a similar quality of research output. It's just a matter of getting our priorities in the right places. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of um a lot of this talk doesn't like a lot of the student loans and everything people don't realize that it's not only um a topic of conversation of like what the US is doing to help out um their students i mean yeah that's like the majority of the talk i i'm trying to like word this more correctly 
A lot of it has to do with the fact that education also is very much barred off from lower income communities, which mm-hmm. are disproportionately minority. Like, if you look back at 2016, 85% of Black graduates across all institution types, so that's public universities, that's private universities, they graduate with debt in comparison to um, their fellow peers who were white. It was just under 70% of them. And they also have higher default rates included in on that. And it's just overall such inequality to the fact that we're not making this an even level playing field for everyone. We are very much barring off education for the lower income communities that, like I said before, are disproportionately minority for a number of reasons. And we're not addressing that as well. And we're just we're just leaving them behind in all of this. Like the majority of people who I see that talk about, oh well, I got to pay off all my loans, like my parents paid for it. Majority of the ones I see speaking about that are not minorities. They are white middle to upper class people who had the fortunate opportunity to not have to pay a massive bill for their education but it's not the same for everyone. Yep. I think people like to talk about education as the great equalizer, but in a lot of ways, it's the exact opposite. Because education is only the great equalizer if people have equal access to it. Um, and I think, like you mentioned, that there's that whole other aspect of, or that whole other, another dimension to the affordability of education, how it impacts minorities disproportionately to, you know, I guess, people in more fortunate socioeconomic situations. Because if you're able, if you're already financially stable, you're more likely to be able to pay for education. You're more likely to be able to get a job that uh, might be make more or might be, you know, only available to those who don't have to worry about the high debt load that they have to pay off. So I think it's a whole cycle of inequality where people who are already in a disadvantaged place will likely continue to be disadvantaged over the course of their careers because they didn't get the high quality education or they didn't get the um, affordable education that they needed, or they made decisions more based on financial feasibility than based on, you know, what would be truly most beneficial to their careers. So I think you're absolutely right. I think this, you know, crisis and, you know, the student loan bubbles and higher education costs, I think it absolutely impacts minorities more than anyone else. Um, I think it's, it's terrible. I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, I guess, inequality in the world, and we should be doing things to try and reduce that, not to just keep the status quo and possibly even increase that inequality even more and widen that gap uh, by, you know, making education um, impossible to pursue. Yeah, and it, yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't just start at the higher education that all of a sudden they can't keep up with their fellow peers. It starts so early on. I mean, even if you just look at inner city schools, they're not able to put as much of their tax dollars into these schools because they don't get as much of it back because these are lower income people. They're not able to spend as much as some of their neighboring towns. Like, even if you just look within Connecticut, first of all, Connecticut has some of the worst income inequality in the entire country. I think it's actually number one for income inequality in the whole country because you have situations like Bridgeport and Fairfield are directly next to each other. Bridgeport cannot spend as much of their tax dollars on 
their high school as Fairfield can for, I think they have like something like three high schools that you can go to there. And they are all absolutely amazing quality schools. They're some of the top schools in the state, but even just their neighbors can't do anything like that because they don't have the tax dollars to put into it. And that's a lot of the time where the inequality starts. It starts at much younger ages and then just continues into higher education. Which, like you were saying before, education is supposed to be the great equalizer, but there's so many disadvantages all across. It's not, it doesn't just start in higher education, but it starts in your primary education. It goes into your secondary and then it finds itself in its post secondary as well, as all these people are graduating with so much more debt than some of their fellow white peers who are a lot of the times in a much better financial place to be able to pay for all of this. And none of this is being addressed. People aren't trying to equalize the playing field for them and they just end up left in the dark all the time. I completely agree. And I think I just want to highlight something you said that, you know, richer communities are able to spend more on education. And I think a large, a substantial reason why that's the case is because many local communities, their governments are funded by property taxes. And people in Greenwich, Connecticut, for example, are paying much more in property taxes than people in Bridgeport, Connecticut, both because they can afford to pay those taxes because, you know, they might have, you know, higher, um, you know, paying jobs and also because their property is worth more and property tax is expressed as a percent of how much your property is worth. Um, and, and, you know, properties in Greenwich are very expensive, of, of course, whereas properties in Bridgeport might be less so. So I think people who are already in great financial situations living in Greenwich can then pay high property taxes, which pays for good schools, which means that their kids are getting good, uh, you know, higher quality education. They get better grades. They can pursue, you know, merit scholarships and are probably more likely to get those. Whereas you look at someone in an inner city school in Bridgeport, um, uh, maybe their schools are less well-funded because they can't afford to fund them as well because they don't have the property tax money to do it. Um, and then those students might not qualify for merit aid or they might not be able to focus as much in school because of personal family issues living in the inner city. And I think one you know way to hopefully minimize or, or less the impact of the cycle would be to switch public school funding away from property taxes. I think that kind of funding structure is inherently discriminatory and inherently um, you know, perpetuating the cycle of inequality. I think instead of funding schools based on a local property tax, I think funding should be allocated at, you know, the state level um, so that each town can get the funding that they need to provide their students with the education that they need. Yeah, even just a quick search of top high schools in Connecticut. I found a list from US, um, U.S. News about their rankings. I went through the rankings of the top 10. Six of them are in Fairfield County, which is one of the richest counties in all the United States. And then other um, three more on the list were private schools that you can go to across the state. And then one of them was in um, Hartford County. And that was it. So even just looking at that, you realize none of those um, none of those schools, none of them come from disadvantaged communities. It's Darianne, Ridgefield. New Canaan, Westport, Wilton, like incredibly expensive towns to live in. It's insane that obviously they're going to get a much better education because like you're saying before, their property taxes are able to pay so much more into their education. They're able to get 
some of the best teachers, some of the best programs. Like a lot of these schools carry IB programs, which you can't get really at any public school in Connecticut, at least like with my public school. I live in a pretty honestly middle tier town. It's not super rich. It's not explicitly poor as well. Like majority of us are just plain working class Americans, but we don't have any sort of programs like that. These schools have tons of AP programs, whereas a school like mine only had, I think like maybe like three or four different classes. But then if you also just look in some of the New Haven schools, I I don't even know like if they have any of those programs. I know that they have a couple AP programs, but definitely not to the extent that these schools would have. So it also puts these students at such a higher advantage than even just like, like I was saying, someone like me who went to high school with only a couple of those programs. I cannot imagine what it's like for people who go to the inner cities who aren't going to be able to take all these classes that they're able to because their programs aren't offered. Yep. I think another dimension to this too is that, you know, when people are applying for post-secondary education, um, a big part of that process is standardized testing. And people who, you know, have the financial resources to pay for private test preparation and test materials and classes, they will generally do better on those tests just because they have the resources to dedicate more time and money to studying. Um, and I think that's also a, a factor in this cycle of inequality because, you know, if you get a higher SAT store score, you might be able to get more merit scholarships. I know with law school specifically, that's a huge factor. If you get, you know, two points higher on your LSAT score, you might get tens of thousands of dollars in scholarships that you wouldn't have been otherwise been able to get. And it's not possible for people who are working full time, you know, and trying to pay for their education to study, you know, 20, 30 hours a week for the LSAT. So they might do worse than someone who was able to focus just on the LSAT and just on getting those two or three more points to get them more money. So I think it's, it's, I think we touched upon an important point here, you know, about how, you know, property taxes, um, you know, funding schools, and I guess at a higher level, different communities having different qualities of public schools, you know, standardized testing, um, all these factors greatly contributed to the cycle of inequality. So. Yeah, I, I feel like we did definitely break into um, a big thing here as well, which is that like the inequality doesn't start a higher education. It starts so much younger. It These people who come from much wealthier communities are put at such a higher advantage than people who maybe come from inner, inner cities. They don't have the best education being given to them because their city can't afford to do it. They're trying to do so much with what little they're being given. And the state and the federal governments do try help out a little bit, but it's not enough at the end of the day to help out these people. Yep. Yeah, I think it, this is this is a great conversation. I think we're just about at the end of our time. I think we're. I've, I've been trying to target five <laughs> minutes. We're right about there. So I don't know if you have any closing points to make, but I think we got a pretty good conversation in here. Yeah, I would say definitely just with my closing point is just to stress to people that we can overcome this issue. We have so many examples that we're able to look to. And the fact that we're the only developed country across the globe that isn't able to give their students 
tuition-free education and also still help them out on top of that is to me, I, I don't see why this is not being done already. And I think that we need to continue pushing the conversation forward and that we can't just have a mentality of um, we'll take what we can get with this. We need to keep on pushing because we do deserve amazing education that isn't going to bankrupt us at the end of the day. And I feel as though people try to look at the idea of a tuition-free public education as sort of pie in the sky ideas, but this isn't. This is something that every other developed country was able to do. So why can't we do it? Yep. I don't think there's an answer to that. I think we can do it. Um, I think you're exactly right. We will overcome this issue. Just a matter of, you know, we need to keep on pushing that conversation, making sure that people are paying attention to this and, and, you know, I guess motivating policymakers to, to force a solution through. I think it's the only way. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Kylie. Um, I guess, uh, that probably wraps things up, but thank you everyone who's listening for tuning in as well. Yeah. Thank you so much and see y'all next week.